Welcome to Fostering Solutions, a podcast that uplifts people and enterprises making positive impact in communities around the world. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Foster. Welcome to the second episode in the Health Solutions series of the Fostering Solutions podcast. I'm honored to have Dr. Jeffrey Cousins as my guest. Welcome, Dr. Cousins. I appreciate you for taking time out of your schedule to join me in this conversation. Good evening, Dr. Foster. It's an honor to have you invite me to participate in your podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs> trying something new here, so we'll, we'll see. <laughs> um, so tell the audience, who is Jeffrey Cousins? What do you want them to know about you? <laughs> Wow. Well, uh, Jeff Cousins is a growing, evolving, maturing, uh, young black man. Uh, I'm the product of a coal mining community in southern West Virginia, as well as a working class community on the east side of Detroit. Uh, I started out in southern West Virginia where my father was a coal miner underground for about 35 years. Mm -hmm. And he was also a deacon in the Baptist church. Uh, and my mother, of course, uh, was a homemaker and uh, community activist, and I was her 11th child, uh, so she stayed busy, uh, you know, being a homemaker. Mm-hmm. And uh, my father subsequently retired from the coal mines after some 30 years, 35 years or so, and we moved to the east side of Detroit, uh, where I finished junior high and high school before going off to the University of Pennsylvania and then coming back to Michigan for the University of Michigan Medical School where I received a medical degree. And uh, I then stayed in the Detroit area and became a general surgery resident and spent five years at St. John's Health System in Detroit before going to the Medical College of Virginia in Richmond, Virginia to do heart surgery. And once I finished my fellowship training in heart surgery, I came back to West Virginia, which was my ultimate goal was to get back to West Virginia to be able to provide state-of-the-art heart surgery and heart health care for West Virginians and our neighbors. Uh, It was always a dream of mine to get back to West Virginia, so I've decided I've actually uh, operated in all the heart surgery programs in West Virginia except for Wheeling, and so I'm looking to try to do a weekend stint there one time. So (laughs) That'll be your claim to fame. You've been all the regions. Been all over West Virginia, yes. So was it a culture shock going from Southern West Virginia to Detroit? Was it, was it a big change? And- it, it was. Uh, and what was interesting, too, is that we moved to Detroit uh, near the beginning and lived there through the crack epidemic of the early 80s. Mm. And so that was an interesting thing to maneuver and uh, survive, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> that yeah. was a pen- <laughs> That was a pandemic before the coronavirus was practically. And before the, <laughs> um, before the opioid epidemic too, right? Absolutely. Well, at that time, it was uh, not considered a disease. It was more considered misbehavior and you brought it on yourself and you're going to jail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, and so that was an interesting time to uh, come up in Detroit. Um, and so I, I, I put part of my roots in West Virginia as part of them on the east side of Detroit. Uh, and so, uh, getting back to West Virginia after doing my heart fellows, uh, heart surgery fellowship was a dream come true. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had a very exciting career here in heart surgery since that time. Uh, 
And of course, uh, I'm a husband uh, and a father of five children and a struggling entrepreneur. Uh, <laughs> specifically now with the COVID-19, really can't do massages six feet apart. And so we're kind of shut down until further notice. Uh, and we're really hoping that we can get open again because we actually uh, have 40 families that work with us uh, in the business. And so we're hoping that we'll be able to maintain that in the future. Yeah, and your and your customers are missing their massages too. Just so you know. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We appreciate your support. Absolutely, absolutely. So you know, how has the pandemic changed your your surgery schedule? Has it impacted your surgery schedule? It has to a great degree. Uh, uh, in heart surgery, though, most of my cases aren't uh, listed as elective. Most of mine are urgent or emergent. Uh, however, uh, most of my cases come from referrals from cardiologists, and indeed worldwide, they've seen a lot less people coming into the hospital and things those lines because I think they're staying at home of fear and fear out of fear of getting the COVID-19. So many more people, they say, are dying at home out of hospital deaths have right. increased. And so uh, the volume for cardiologists who feed us surgery cases is way down, which then makes us be way down as well. Wow, so that's going to be another side effect of all this, people just dying from surgeries, yes. from not having surgeries that they could have had prior to the pandemic. That's interesting. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So why did you choose your career? Why did you, you're a cardiothoracic surgeon, so why did you choose that career? Uh, in some ways, I say my career kind of chose me. Uh, and one of the beautiful things about my career is really more of a lifestyle than a job or a career because, you know, mm -hmm. even though I may leave the hospital at five or six or seven in the evening, if something happens with one of my patients, I have to be immediately available to go back. And that's whether it's weekends, holidays, family outings, recital, or what have you. So it's more of a lifestyle than a job. Fortunately, I love what I do. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, my wife and family are very forgiving of all of the important events that I miss because yeah. I've called away, you know, people, you know, have heart attacks at all times of day or night. And so it's kind of hard to predict when I'm going to need to go in to do it. Like I went in yesterday morning uh, around eight o'clock, some gentleman had come in overnight and I was not planning to go and do heart surgery on Mother's Day when I was trying to cook breakfast. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but you run out and uh you know the satisfaction that you get is that you know you're able to help people uh when they're at a very risky point in their life and get them back on the road to recovery and so it's a very enjoyable a highly rewarding career uh and so i've never really looked at it as like a job but i guess i really got my start being around hospitals early on because uh my dad was about 50 when i was born and my mom was about 46. Mm -hmm. He had spent 35 years underground coal mining, so he had black lung and heart disease. Wow. My mother had given birth to her 11th child, uh, and so she had health issues like diabetes and things along that line that she developed, uh, actually gestational diabetes when she was pregnant with me. Mm -hmm. And so she had some other health issues, high blood pressure. Uh, she had maintained some of her weight from her previous uh, pregnancies and things along that line. So high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, things on that. And so we were back and forth to hospitals and doctor's offices when I was a very young child. 
But what I found oftentimes was that we would drive sometimes from McDowell County way over into Bluefield or Princeton to hospitals there that would take an hour or two to get there. And oftentimes on the ride home, we were more confused about what the game plan is or what the medical treatment was going to be than when we went to the office. Mm-hmm. And I saw early on that uh, people tended not to really want to care for my parents, uh, you know, not really want to, you know, oftentimes people didn't listen to their heart with a stethoscope or they didn't feel their pulse or things along that line. They were kind of very cursory. Uh, and, and even as a child, I could, I could see that. You sense that, wow. Yes, absolutely. And so I think some of those early interactions with the medical profession kind of one got me interested in it. And then as I grew, uh, I had an interest in trying to provide, it was, you know, it's, it's a stigma uh, I, I don't know how long you've been in West Virginia, but there's a stigma with West Virginia uh, that comes. And when you go outside of the state, you find we're off in the brunt of a lot of the jokes and things along that line. And then that translates into uh, a lot of times people feel West Virginians don't deserve first rate things. We all need good for hand-me-downs and secondhand and thirdhand. And so that was something that always stuck with me as a child and I always felt that we deserve better. And that's why I'm very excited to be here exactly. doing heart surgery in the state and, and you know, offering and now with the programs been affiliated with Western University and they're offering heart transplant. And we have the whole gamut now without leaving the state. And so I think you get better care. And that's one issue that you run into as African-Americans, too. Uh, when you don't see physicians that look like you or when students don't see teachers that look like them, sometimes there's things that are lost in the relationship. And those things that are lost in the relationship in terms of healthcare, particularly now when we're looking at COVID-19 and people being sent home with symptoms but denied a test mm-hmm. until they come in and they're so far and extreme that they immediately get put on a ventilator. And so all those things impacted me and caused me to want to get involved with medicine and then want to bring those types of uh, state-of-the-art treatments to West Virginia and the people of West Virginia. That's good. And we, we're happy to have you. We're lucky to have you here because I'm sure you could be anywhere in, in the world, probably. Well, you know. And then the uh, came back home. Yeah. Well, that was always my plan. And uh, when you look at uh, diabetes, high blood pressure, tobacco use, COPD, all of the top things that lead to heart disease, we're number one. So I'm really at the epicenter of what, you know, a heart surgeon, you know, there's so many prime cases here for people who need heart surgery. I'm really on the front line of of that type of a need because, uh, and that's why everyone was so afraid of the COVID coming here because we, as a state, have all of the pre- uh, disposing conditions or comorbid conditions that cause the COVID-19 to really, and you, and you look at that also within the African-American community, there's a prevalence of diabetes, heart disease, lung disease, things along this line, hypertension and what have you, that kind of predispose you to having other issues if you get sick. So we all kind of make it along daily. So we get used to doing our activities of daily living. What used to take us 10 minutes now may take us 30 or 40 minutes to do, but we kind of move along. But then we have a hiccup like COVID-19 or some other issue. And that really throws a a curveball at us. And and sometimes it's too much for us to handle. So, So as a surgeon, when you see the disproportionate impact that the the 
uh, that COVID-19 has had on people of color? How does that, I mean, how do you react? How does that make you feel? Wow, this is, this is something that I read about, reading about the Spanish flu from the 1900s, early 1918 or so years ago, but it's almost surreal. Uh, it, it's, it's unimaginable that in a highly uh, modernized, industrialized country like the United States, uh, supposedly the leader in everything, that we would allow uh, people to succumb to this virus without taking every precaution very early on with testing, with isolation, with tracking, with what have you, uh, and that we're still struggling with it now. This so far into the into the pandemic, we still don't have adequate testing, adequate chase. Uh, there's no vaccine, and that's not likely to be available for a couple of years if the studies are done correctly. Uh, and so it's very disheartening to see it happen for the public at all, but in particular to the African American community because I know about a lot of the pre-existing conditions and the lack of access, and also that people get ignored. Uh, people come in and have very uh, common symptoms and are ignored. And many times, unfortunately, only because of the color of their skin. Uh, other people, you know, would not be treated that way. And um, history teaches us that, and modern day video teaches us that as well on, a, on almost a daily basis now. So it's very disheartening. And you feel helpless because, you know, uh, it seems like our leadership is, is helpless. Uh, they took a long time to recognize that we were going to have a problem, even though they had been warned and had plenty of time to prepare. And now it seems like it's going to be profit over human life, uh, with the statistics showing that, the, you know, the African-American community is about 13.4% of the population, but about 58% of the COVID deaths. Mm -hmm. Are we now saying that, well, since it's only hitting Blacks and minorities, let's get back to work? Uh, and I think, unfortunately, that is the case in a lot of situations. So we have to be very careful because it's typically black and brown people that are on these uh, frontline jobs, driving the bus, working the soup, uh, working in the kitchen, uh, you know, cleaning up the hospitals, doing these things and those things and are very susceptible to uh, being uh, inflicted by the virus. And I'm concerned about, like, you know, cities like um, Atlanta, uh, where they opened up so quickly. And those are mainly people of high percentage of people of color working yes. in those jobs that were open in, uh, in those businesses that were first yes. open. It really makes you wonder. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And and because we the, have to wait a couple weeks to see how that turns out. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, the uh, government businesses are not opening. They're still working from home. Workers have gone back to work, but the white collar workers, they're still working from home and things along that line. And so folks who can stay home are staying home. People who can't afford to stay home are getting thrust back out there. And it's, it's kind of a roll of the dice. Yep, yep, yep. So let's think about well-being as uh, in general. Um, you look it up in the dictionary, the definition you see is being comfortable, healthy, and happy. That's what they define well-being as. How would you define well-being? Well, I would, I would agree with those things. I, I kind of look at it as a mind, body, and soul, because I think those three things are inextricably intertwined with one another. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we always talk about you are what you eat, but you are also what you think. 
and what you feel. And those things become very important because uh, disease, I think, begins in the mind. Uh, you know, you get uh, excited about something, you get sweaty palms, you get an upset stomach, it may go on to diarrhea and what have you. And if you control it in your mind, your palms stop sweating, your stomach stops churning. And so I think that disease begins in the mind before it manifests in its body. And I think healing also has to take place in the mind before the body will do, you know, it's like with the COVID thing. They say, well, if you got a good immune system, you likely will get COVID and maybe don't even experience anything. Maybe a little cough, maybe a little fever, but no, nothing clinically that's going to cause you to say, hey, I need to go to the hospital. So it revs that up, that immunity. And I think that the, the mind has the ability to do that. So when people live uh, in a state of what we'll say is something short of well-being, they're constantly in a, a flux, a fight or flight situation, which is what we find ourselves in a lot of time in uh, modern community, urban communities and things along that line. When you're in a constant fight or flight, you're constantly tense. You have hormones of stress that are floating around in your body, which tighten down your blood vessels, cause your blood pressure to increase, causes your heart to work more, causes you then to have a harder time breathing and doing everything. And so when you get back to a state of normalcy, a state of balance, a state of understanding that you've got to be uh, at one with the mind, the body, and soul so that you can be in a state of well-being. And then the other thing about well-being is the ability to go about your activities of daily living and pursue your dreams unimpended by racism and discrimination. And so that ends up being a huge problem, uh, even like now with a recent legislation in West Virginia where people are still uptight about how you wear your hair. I know. Wasn't, it wasn't how, amazing. It's just incredible. You know, uh, you can be President Obama and head of the Yale or the Harvard Law Review and become the president and uh, have eight years of no scandal, but still you're looked down upon because of your melanin in your skin and the way you wear your hair superficial things that don't matter how hard you work, how good you had the economy going, uh, how well you behaved on a national stage and an international stage, all those things take second uh, fiddle, you know, and it's, it's very discouraging. It is, it is. So when we think about our well-being as people of color, what can we learn, and, and you've kind of shared some of this as, as we went along, what, what can we learn from history um, what has history taught us about taking yes. uh, care of ourselves and just our overall well-being? Absolutely. You know, history is everything. It's sort of like the, the way we determine where we are on the continuity of, of life and, and existence. And uh, there's a very important symbol uh, called the Sankofa bird. It's a bird that looks into its past. You always see it with its head turned back look into the past in order to understand where they come from, to understand how you get into the situation you're in, and that helps you to plot your future. And in the past, we have been, you know, we, we can go way back to ancient uh, prehistoric time, and you'll find that we have always been a very highly civilized group of people. If you look at Imhotep, uh, he was considered the Prince of Peace. He was an architect. He was the first physician. He designed the step pyramid at Saqqara, which became the prototype for the pyramids of Giza. Uh, and so our history, you could just run and get excited. And, and it's so very rich 
uh, it builds you up. It gives you a backbone to be able to withstand the things that we're going on right now. And it shows you uh, how our ancestors solved problems, how they mapped out the stars and the movement of the constellations in order to know when to plant and know when the water was going to be and know when there was going to be uh, no water and things along that line. And so I think if we get into that, it'll show a very sophisticated civilization and it will then allow us to be more creative in how we get youngsters involved in science and math and into, as they call STEM, uh, things to get them into medical field and things along that line. We have to be very creative versus just sitting and trying to uh, lecture to them all the time. And we can incorporate these types of things and you'll see very high civilizations and then it, negates uh, all of the things because right now it looks like uh, the bulk of what our children know begins with slavery and there may be a little Rosa Parks a little bit of MLK but beyond that they don't have a whole lot that they understand and then uh, because they're not taught absolutely yes and these are things though that the, uh, the bulk of it I think we probably learned in the community uh, we learned a little bit in school because some of our teachers were also our family and people from the community, which doesn't really exist now. But a lot of the things we learned about struggle, about we should overcome, about Black Panthers, about things along that line, we likely learned from Saturday school or lectures or things along that line. And we have to reinstitute those things now in order to get the kids up to speed and also to keep ourselves up to speed on, on what we need to be doing as well. That would be a good way of really inspiring young people to, to become, to not limit their, their possibilities by, by learning more about their history. I imagine that would help them to be able to reach for the stars, you know. Absolutely. Just looking at the, limit, the limitations of, of who we are and where we can go. Well, in particular, when you look at the image of the black male in modern day times, whether you're looking at TV, internet, or what have you, there's nothing positive that is related to a black male. Maybe an athlete uh, or an entertainer, for so to speak. But other than that, there's not a whole lot of positive that you see related to the black male. And that's going to continue to, and, and I think that's what leads to uh, Ahmaud Arbery situations, where, you know, if you're not seen as human, then I can hunt you down and kill you like a dog, go home and have dinner with my family and move along. And society will also accept that as okay, as evidenced by the fact that it's been some three months or something since yeah. his I heard death. About it like last week, it seems like. It wasn't and it happened in yeah. February, I think. February, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, and so it, it's, you know, you're not viewed as human. And, and that's, that's the issue, uh, because if you were viewed as human or as equal, you know, uh, you know it's, it's like uh, when the police go into certain neighborhoods, they go either with lethal weapons or with non-lethal weapons when they're on a call. And uh, Tatiana Jefferson was sitting at home one night in her uh, house playing video games with her eight-year-old nephew, I think it was. And there was a call and the policeman went to her house and shot through the window and killed her because he showed up to this neighborhood with an idea. I'm going into a black neighborhood. I'm going locked and loaded. I'm going to go in with lethal weapons. 
And then we see other cases where people shoot at the police uh, and, and, and then are detained uh, alive and, you know, yeah. uh, have an opportunity to have a day in court. And we're kind of jury, uh, judge, jury, and executioner right on the spot. Right on the spot. Yeah, and so it's, 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 the, it's that image. And unfortunately, a lot of us have taken on that, 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 that image as well which allows us to shoot and kill each other like this cities in Chicago and Detroit and things along that line. It becomes a self-hate type of image because of a lack of self-understanding and self-worth and self-identity. And so we behave towards ourselves the same way as our enemies behave toward us. And then we end up into a very tough situation. So how do we turn that around? How do we, I mean, what role do we have to play in turning that around? What, what roles do others um, should others play in really turning that whole um, narrative around? To educate people to ideas and concepts like heaven is a black woman's womb, to give an understanding that our ancestors used to revere our women. So how can we then not revere our women? And any society, they say, to determine how the society is doing as a whole, you look at the women and children. And so if you look at black women and black children now, we're not faring that well. We're not faring very well at all. And so we have to reverse that. And so I think if we uh, promote those types of concepts, then it changes the way you make decisions. Like we talk a lot about the reason why am I into medicine and stuff. I come out of a village where people had expectations of me, where I was taught and shown respect and then I was required to uh, carry myself in a certain way. And then part of my motivation was because most people told me and the system told me, you can't be a doctor, let alone be a heart surgeon. Well, that motivated me. Plus uh, the desire to not disappoint my mother, not disappoint my father, not disappoint the teachers who have spent time educating me. All of those things propelled me and caused me then to make different decisions. And I think that's the only thing young kids now need is a little bit of a push to uh, get into a position to make better decisions. And those better decisions then lead to better outcomes. Because I was no uh, superstar. I struggled. I had lots of struggles. Uh, I failed numerous times. I got knocked down numerous times. But it was because of those folks that were around me, those folks who had been images for me, uh, the fact that my father told me coal mining was no good. <laughs> so I had to keep pushing myself in a different direction. And it, all those little tidbits of things, like I tried to put together a lot of the cliches from back in the day. Ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Proper prevention is, uh, prevents poor performance. All of those types of things I try to get back into the kids' minds because, you know, just like I'm sure you do, at periods of time, your, your mother's voice comes in your head. Oh, your yeah. father's voice, some teacher's voice, some mentor's voice comes into your head and it causes, like when I'm in surgery, I hear some of the guys who taught me and girls taught me surgery and it helps me get through the surgery. It's like, don't ever do this. Don't ever do that. This, <laughs> you know, that type of stuff. And you can hear them as clear as day. And so I think to get the kids on track, history um, is, is, is very important because it shows them that they have the DNA inside them to do mathematics, to do science, to build pyramids, to discover medical cures, to do surgery, to do whatever it is that's out there. And once you see it, 
then you can begin to believe it. But until you see it, it's kind of, you know, uh, esoteric and it's kind of abstract. But, you know, uh, I think once you put it in front of them, you know, they thrive. Like I've got a two-year-old and she can be anything in the world that she decides she wants to be. She's already in charge. She already, you know, and one of the greatest things about her too is if she can't do something, she'll immediately say, you help me, help me. And then she will stand there and say, help me, help me, help me until you help her get what's done. I'm like, wow, that's, that's great. Because a lot of us are too proud or too whatever to ask for help. And, and the two-year-old teach me and say, yeah, get some help in here. We can get this thing together and make it happen. Yes. So, so how do we, it's like, how do we get that message across to our young people then? Is it having more teachers in the school system? Is it teaching them outside of the classroom? How do we get that, that message, that thinking straight? I think it's a combination of, of the above, but I, I think reinstituting Saturday type schools where either Saturday morning or Saturday afternoon, we get together and we just have history sessions. Uh, maybe have some refreshments then maybe show a little movie or something with them about some of the ancestors that you know things that happen because there's a lot of stuff on media and video now that we can actually show that or engage young people and if they can see these things happening understand uh you know how people made things happen long before there was facebook and messenger and things along that line and uh i think we can get them on the right track because the, the children are hungry to learn typically they get turned off because they get ignored. They're asked for help, like my two-year-old. And then when you shoo them away or you don't help them, they get discouraged. Thank you for joining me for part one of the Taking Control of Our Wellbeing podcast. Be sure to check out part two of my conversation with Dr. Jeffrey Cousins.